Welcome to episode 240 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Electric vehicle sales will be 14 million units in 2023, a 30% increase over last year, and they're forecast to rise again in 2024. EVs are disrupting transportation and the automotive industry worldwide. To look, at, to look back at some of the big electric transportation stories of this year and what might be coming in the near future, I'm joined by Sam Abel-Samid, automotive engineer and EV analyst for Guidehouse Insights. Welcome to the interview, Sam. Hey, it's good to be with you again, Markham. It's been too long. It really has. Uh, the last interview we did, Sam, was about 14 months ago. And the, the the fault, of course, is mine. Uh, we've been working a lot on oil and gas and a lot on global stories. And and I miss our interviews about the about the evolving electric transportation market. You've always got a ton of insights into what's going on, particularly in the US market. So um since we're we're you know gonna be talking about stories from 2023, what's your take on this? the slowdown in the electric vehicle industry narrative? Because the, the data doesn't really seem to support it. What's your take? So, yeah, you know, what, what we've actually seen is a slowdown for certain brands. Um, I guess rather, I guess maybe a, a different way to phrase it is there's actually been no slowdown in sales. What we've seen is some slowing in growth. So we haven't, we're, we haven't actually hit a, a compound growth kind of part of the curve yet for EV sales. Um, I was recently plotting out uh, EV sales uh, for, for the U.S. for the last three years, and it's almost a straight line up and to the right. Um, you know, we haven't gotten into that hockey stick part of the curve yet, uh, but sales have continued to increase. Um, the uh, market share for EVs has grown from three and a half percent to five and a half percent to almost seven and a half percent through November of this year in the U.S. market. So, um, you know, we're, we're getting significantly more EV sales. Last month, uh, in November, we topped one million battery electric vehicle sales in the United States for the very first time ever. Um, and we'll probably end up somewhere around one point two million for the year. Um, so it's still been fairly steady growth. There's been, you know, as usual, when you look at these curves, uh, you know, if you look month to month, you know, there's always a little bit of fluctuation. Uh, we did have a bit of slowdown uh, in, the, in the spring for a couple of months. But overall, sales are still trending upwards at roughly the same pace that they have been. That said, within the larger market, there are some manufacturers that are struggling, um, you know. Tesla sales, for example, have the sales growth has slowed to almost nothing. Uh, they had little, little bit of growth this year, but most of that's been driven by a slashing of prices on their vehicles. Um, they cut prices over the course of earlier this year by 20% or more across their lineup. Uh, and that has helped them to maintain some growth, but the it's it's really more plateaued uh, for, for Tesla. And then General Motors and Ford have also had some challenges, which have been related, I think, more more to the fact that they've, you know, they're, there's they're they're hitting saturation uh, in terms of the products that they have available uh, at the price points, which is really the the key factor across the industry is pricing right now, um, and it's it's a combination there of both the 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 sticker prices of vehicles. Um, as well as high interest rates that are persisting, which have made all vehicle prices significantly higher and have really cut down the demand. So over the last couple of years, you know, we had a lot more demand than we had supply. The supply chain challenges are largely sorted out, not entirely, but largely sorted out. Um, and we're now into a phase where that gap between supply and demand is closing up. So we're seeing... You know, inventories climb, uh, but overall, you know, the the sales are still going up. Some manufacturers like Hyundai Motor Group, Hyundai, Kia, and Genesis really doing well. Uh, a lot of growth. Volkswagen Group uh, has had a lot of growth, um, and and even GM, which has struggled with their new vehicles, their Ultium platform EVs, had a great year with the Chevy Bolt, 
<laughs> because that's their cheapest EV. It had its best sales year ever, just as production ended last week on the Bolt, uh, unfortunately. So um, they're, uh, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, a mixed bag, but the overall trend is in the right direction. Yeah, you can see where higher interest rates would would affect the North American manufacturers because they've focused on the premium market. And, mm -hmm. you know, so the Ford F-150 Lightning, for example, the, the Mach-E Mustang, uh, some of the SUVs that, that GM has just brought uh, into the market, th those are pretty pricey vehicles. And oh, yeah. You know, and, and, and they got much pricier last year when battery material costs went up. You know, the prices got jacked up and have come down somewhat uh, as battery prices have subsided, but uh, they're still... They're still too expensive for most people. Uh, you know, and I don't think we should be surprised at this. I've never seen an industry, you know, a new industry begin growth and not have some stumbles. Mm -hmm. It just, yeah. you know, I, I was around for the 90s, you know, when the we had the internet boom and there were stumbles aplenty uh, at that point. And then, you know, eventually, uh, you know, the, the revolution in telecom uh, technology, uh, has changed the economy significantly from what it was 30 years ago. So I, I don't think we should, we should, I mean, we, we just should have expected this. Now I am curious about your take on Tesla because um, if we're talking about high prices impeding sales and yet Tesla slashes, slashes its prices by 20% and, and, and sales plateau, what's the explanation for that? So, you know, Tesla is kind of uh, in a unique position. Um, you know, they're they're facing multiple challenges. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, they have gone from being kind of the the only really viable EV product in the market for for a long time to suddenly having a lot of competition from everywhere. <clears throat> you know, at at the premium end of the market, there's some really great EVs from both premium uh, European brands from Mercedes-Benz, from BMW, from Volvo, uh, as well as even from Korea with Genesis. Uh, and uh, then, you know, at the the lower end of the market, again, you know, uh, the Hyundai Motor Group has got some great products. Volkswagen's got some great products. Um, and then there's the whole other part of the, the problem, <laughs> which is Elon Musk. Uh, you know, e Elon Musk um, has turned off a lot of people who might have considered buying a Tesla in the past. Uh, and, you know, so, I mean, a lot of people who have bought Teslas uh, this over the past year have actually been getting rid of their Teslas and buying EVs from other brands just because they are so fed up. They don't want to be giving any money to anything associated with with Musk. Um, and we don't need to get into all of the politics around that. Yeah. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that. But, you know, so there's 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 those two sides of of the coin. But really, the, the competition is is the big thing. Uh, and even though, you know, as I said, you know, Tesla sales are up a bit this year compared to 2022. Um, you know, their, their sales have largely leveled off uh, and their but their market share has dropped because everybody else is gaining. Um. I've never seen a brand be tarnished as quickly or th as thoroughly as what Elon Musk has done to Tesla. It, it really is astounding. I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and uh, and people are doing exactly what you said. They are really, really, really annoyed with that guy and as they should be. And we won't get in, as you say, we won't get into that. But here's, I, I, I've, I've talked to EV analysts over the number of years, including yourself. And the the one that sticks out in my mind is one I did with with a fellow in China, and he said, in China, China's a very different market. They see their cars as rolling iPhones, mm -hmm. and and an extension of their mobile mobile phone, which is their 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 uh, bridge into China's mobile culture, where they do everything online. And he made the point that the Chinese manufacturers get that. They, they have competitive technology and it's very geared to that, that market. But Tesla is the only one of the other manufacturers that gets it. And Tesla's technology is really, really superior. And probably he opined maybe they have a two-year lead on other uh, EV makers. And in, in that market, two years is like a lifetime. 
Uh, what would be your take on that? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that's always been appealing to a lot of customers, especially the early adopters about Tesla, is that you know that that kind of uh, concept of being a rolling you know smartphone on wheels. And, you know, it's always been centered around that that big screen in the car from from the launch of the Model S onwards. Uh, having this, this giant screen in the car and doing everything through that screen uh, and having having connectivity um, that uh, that you know keep keeps the vehicle connected having over the air software updates having all kinds of apps that can run on the phone you know having games being being able to play games on the screen while you're charging watching you know streaming movies and TV shows so yeah te Tesla has been you know, at the bleeding edge of that idea of the software-defined vehicle. Um, the rest of the industry is slowly starting to catch up to that. Um, they, you know, again, you know, they're having a lot of stumbles with that. Uh, you know, General Motors, you know, is just in the process of launching the Blazer EV. And there were a couple of reports that came out. I, I drove it a couple of weeks ago, you know, and it it's really good in a lot of ways. And I didn't have any software issues with it, but I know others who had some major software issues with it, with the, you know, with the whole infotainment system just going blank and crashing. So uh, it's 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 a it's a tough thing for others to try to replicate. Let's talk about software for a moment because uh, Volkswagen uh, had some really really serious so problems with their their internal software uh, division. In fact, they got the the CEO fired. I can't remember if it was mm -hmm. earlier this year or late in 2022. I think it was late last year. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that was a big issue. So GM. I mean, these are these are companies that I guess you know GM's had the bolt, so it's not mm -hmm. like they're new to software, but maybe not on this scale. And the it's I've had people who are of experience in the electronics industry say you could have expected this. You know, an electric vehicle is very, very different than an internal combustion engine vehicle. And there are some core competencies that, you know, the Chinese would be better at and, and apparently Tesla is better at. And then one of them is software. I don't know. What's your take? So software is not new to the auto industry. They've been doing software since the 1970s. And as an engineer, that's what I worked on for most of my 17-year career in product development was software but that was embedded software control systems that were controlling aspects of the vehicle which is very different from what we're talking about today that was not really customer facing software um and what were the the kinds of things where these companies are having challenges now is not so much that that embedded software they still know how to do that that works fine it's the customer facing interfaces that uh where where they're struggling um, and that's a very different, a fundamentally different approach to software uh, and software development. Uh, and you know, that's the kind of thing that the tech industry has been long familiar with. You know, Tesla had recruited a lot of people from from technology companies that had uh, experience with that. Automakers have been trying to recruit, you know, the same kinds of engineers to to work on that kind of software, and they're making progress but it's still a, a big challenge and there's a lot of problems. And frankly, that part of it is actually has nothing to do with whether it's internal combustion or electric. It, it so happens that, you know, EV companies have taken the lead on that stuff, but we're also seeing a lot of the, the same technologies being applied to all the internal combustion vehicles that are still out there with modern infotainment systems that are having problems and crashing. Um, so, that that part is is disconnected from whatever the propulsion system is, but it's it's a problem that the industry is going to have to uh, reckon with and and figure out how to do. What about the emergence of a used EV market in North America? And I guess it's, it would be different depending on the region you're in. It'd be different in China and then different in in the EU. But um, my understanding is that uh, in North America, three used vehicles are bought for every one new vehicle. And so the emergence of a, of a used EV market would seem to be critical to the continued growth of, of EVs. Is that a good way to look at it? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's something that most people don't really think about. Is, as you said, you know, it's roughly three to one ratio of used cars 
to used vehicles to new vehicle sales every year in North America. Uh, so used new vehicle sales are the ones that get all the attention. You know, it's the the latest and greatest stuff. But the vast majority of people in North America never buy new vehicles. They they buy used vehicles because that's what they can afford. And so, um, you know, the new vehicle buyers are much more likely to live in a single family home, have access to off-street parking, uh, and they're able to charge at home. And, and because they can afford a new vehicle, they're also more likely to be able to afford to install charging infrastructure at home and, and be able to charge overnight and not necessarily have to rely on public charging infrastructure. And this is something we, we actually published a report on recently is that, you know, having robust public charging, reliable public charging is going to be essential to EV adoption. Because once you once those vehicles pass from new vehicle buyers to the secondhand market, um, now you're looking at, um, you know, half, roughly half of those people that either live in apartments, condos, townhouses, um, or even, even in single family homes in older neighborhoods where they have to park on the street, um, or they're renters, you know, in many cases. And so, um, you know, they may not be able to just call up an electrician and have a, a charger installed in their home. Uh, so they're going to be much more reliant on that public charging. And it's essential that we fix the problems with that. And frankly, um, you know, this is one area where Tesla has really outshone the rest of the industry is with the development of the supercharger network. The, the rest of the rest of the, the charging industry in North America in particular has utterly failed. And in particular, Electrify America and, and their uh, Canadian division, Electrify Canada, which is uh, a division of Volkswagen Group. Uh, it, it was born, that, that charging company was born out of the Dieselgate settlement. Uh, that's, that's why, it, that's the only reason it exists is because of Dieselgate. And um, they've gone out, they've installed thousands of DC fast chargers, but they've done a terrible job of maintaining them and making sure that they actually work. And this is one of the other reasons why I think we, besides the cost part of it, why we've seen some slowdown in growth of EV sales uh, this year is because people are hearing these reports of catastrophic problems with, with charging. Um, and you know, the, in, the, in the US, we have roughly 290 million vehicles, registered vehicles on the road, uh, and fewer than 2 million electric vehicles. So less than 1% of the, the vehicle fleet is electric. If we want to ultimately replace that, you know, most or all of that fleet with electric vehicles, we have to fix the problem of public charging. Uh, so that means reliable DC fast charging. We need to put in curbside charging. Um, you know, we, we need to have workplace charging, charging everywhere so that those who are unable to charge at home still have viable options to conveniently charge. Can you give us an overview of the changes that have come recently with the U.S. adopting the uh, the the Tesla uh, the the adapter the the plug-in and and the 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 importance of that to fixing that public charging infrastructure? Yeah, uh, roughly about a year ago, Tesla announced that they were going to open source their charger charging connector design uh, and. Uh, branded it as the North American charging standard. Um, the other standard, primary standard in North America is the CCS combined charging standard, uh, CCS type one. Um, and that's what everybody but Tesla uh, has used uh, up till now on their EVs. That That's part of the problem. The, the, the CCS connector is big and bulky. It's hard for people to use. Um, and... Um, Ford was the first uh, last spring to announce that they were going to switch over to the Nax connector. Um, and most other automakers have now followed. The only major automaker that has not announced its plans to use Nax is Stellantis. Uh, but that's they don't have any EVs available right now. And my guess is that in the, the next few weeks or months, as they start to as they get ready to start launching their first uh, EVs, they will make that same announcement. Uh, Volkswagen just this past week announced that they were going to go to Nax. Uh, and um, we now have a standard. So um, pr pr originally that connector design came from, from came from Tesla. 
Um, and SAE uh, back in June announced that they would um, work uh, quickly to generate to create an industry standard around that connector design. Uh, and this week they published the J3400 standard, uh, which uh, is for the the NAX connector. Uh, covers all, all kinds of aspects of it. And actually, uh, have did an interview with uh, Dr. Rodney McGee, who's the uh, uh, he was the he's a professor at uh, University of Delaware, and he was chair of the task force that developed that standard. Um, and I've got it on my wheel bearings podcast uh, right now for patrons, and it'll be on the the main show next week. Uh, but it's a it's a very geeky conversation, but he goes through all of the benefits. But uh, among the benefits of the switch to this new standard are charging infrastructure should actually get cheaper uh, because we'll have support for up to 277 volt single phase. Um, the, the charging will get faster um, and uh, it it will be um, uh, more efficient, more more energy efficient because we. Uh, by going to 277 volts from 240, uh, we can eliminate some of the, the voltage transformers that cause losses. So there's a lot of benefits in addition to the fact that the connector is smaller. So starting in the spring, um, automakers will start rolling out adapters for their existing EVs with CCS connectors that allow you allow customers to use Tesla superchargers. And then towards the end of next year, early 2025, new EVs from other manufacturers will have the NAX connector built in. Does this give Tesla a competitive advantage? And does Tesla have plans then to expand its supercharger network to take advantage of that? Uh, Tesla does plan to expand the supercharger network. How much of a co competitive advantage it is it will be remains to be seen. One of the advantages Tesla has had up to this point with their supercharger network is that they control the entire ecosystem. They've only got four, now five vehicle models that all have the same basic hardware in there. They control the hardware at the vehicle level, the hardware, the software stack in the vehicle and in the chargers. And so they've, they've, they've been in a very similar position to Apple. Uh, you know, before we, start, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about Apple. Apple controls their ecosystem, hardware and software. And they can make sure that all the software works properly with all the hardware and all the pieces of hardware work together. Um, you know, if you look at Windows or Android, um, you know, you've got Microsoft and Google that control the operating system, but you've got hundreds of companies uh, building thousands or millions of permutations of hardware, and they have to try and make all those pieces work together. Once you have Ford and GM and Hyundai and Volkswagen vehicles trying to use the superchargers or trying to use the superchargers it remains to be seen if all of the software in the vehicles talks properly to the software in the chargers and everything works smoothly um so right now tesla's superchargers have been very reliable because of tesla's control once they lose that control some of that you know a lot of the problems we have with other chargers today is software related not so much hardware related so We'll see. Um, you know, we'll a year from now we can have this conversation after cars have been using CC uh, and NAX uh, superchargers for for six eight months, and uh, we'll see if if the problem has actually gotten better. One of the things I want to talk to you about uh, is sales in emerging markets, and there's a, a wider context for this question, which is that there's emerged uh, two visions of how the global energy transition is going to uh, pan out. And so the, you have the International Energy Agency, it's going to be fast, you can see oil demand peak in 2030 or, or sooner, that whole narrative. And then you have the OPEC narrative, which came out in their uh, World Oil Outlook 2045, uh, back in, uh, oh, it must have been early October, where it's going to be slow. And one of the reasons they think it's going to be slow is because emerging markets like India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Latin America and, and Africa uh, are go aren't going to provide the kind of subsidies and other supports that China, Europe, and North America and other countries have. And so they think that EVs will be slow to roll out in those emerging markets. And I just wondered what your uh, view of that was. Yeah, no, I, we, I agree. Um, you know, the the adoption rate is not going to be as fast uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, cost obviously is one of them. 
uh, you know, income levels in many of those emerging markets for consumers are not as high as what you find in China and North America or Europe. Uh, so affordability is is going to be a problem, as is infrastructure, just as it is here. I mean, the, the, we've talked before, the, the main barriers to EV adoption are affordability of the vehicles and access to infrastructure and time to charge. This, the same is true in those emerging markets, perhaps to an even greater degree. Uh, and so I think, you know, what we're going to see in emerging markets is, uh, you know, in order to get EV adoption, we're going to have to have some different types of vehicles. Uh, you know, you're not going to have, <clears throat> at least initially, um, you're not going to have so many vehicles that can run, uh, you know, four, five, 600 kilometers on a charge. You know, it's going to be smaller vehicles, smaller batteries, more for getting around town, you know, urban commuting, um, and, uh, you know, maybe more of a focus on electrification of two and three wheeled vehicles rather than cars, uh, you know, because they can get by with a much smaller battery uh, and you can do things like battery swapping more easily with those. You know, you get systems like Gogoro for scooters that uh, they have they, they've in places like Taiwan in Taipei, you know, they've got kiosks all over the city. You know, you subscribe to the battery and, you know, when you need a need a charge instead of a instead of plugging in your vehicle you just pull up to one of these kiosks pull the battery out of your vehicle pop it into the kiosk and grab a fresh one out uh so i think some different solutions uh to solving the electrification problem that are suited to those specific markets yeah i'm going to make a bit of a prediction here uh, i think that in the emerging markets that it will go faster than opec thinks anyway and largely because of china mm -hmm. i you know china is the one uh, its manufacturer, its EV makers have focused on the lower end of the market in, in addition to the premium. And so you get like the Guangdong Mini at $4,500 US and some of those other low end. Uh, I think it was BYD brought out the song for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, for $10,000. And and not only that, but, but China uh, has so much surplus capacity in a lot of its clean energy technology. It's, it's looking for new markets. And to use its Belt and Road Initiative to open up those, pry open those those emerging markets, uh, and get established now, I I think they're going to pour a lot of subsidies into and provide a lot of low interest loans for that. So we'll see how that pans out. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's and, and and I agree. You know, I think it's definitely going to be faster than what OPEC's projecting, but as I said, not as fast as you know the the developed markets have have gone. Yes. yes uh, so somewhere that. somewhere in between there. And you know that that adaptation of the products uh, to those specific markets. What's your take on the effect of the Inflation Reduction Act on the build out of the U.S. EV industry? I've seen a report that the IRA has already sparked a hundred billion dollars of EV and battery plant investment, about three quarters of that in in battery plants. We've seen. I don't know how many announcements. This seems like every second day there's a battery plant announcement. Uh, is that what you're seeing? So I would say that um, the effects of the IRA uh, tend to be vastly overstated by those that were, you know, supporters, politicians that were supporters of it, uh, and in some ways, you know, maybe underestimated uh, uh, by others. Most of those battery plant announcements actually predate anybody hearing about the IRA. Um, you know, certainly, you know, now, you know, the m most of these were announced prior to the middle of 2022. Um, what we have seen in some cases uh, is some acceleration, uh, you know, pulling forward of the schedules on some factories, uh, particularly, you know, Hyundai is a, is a good example. They had pre announced plans for a new factory in Georgia uh, that would build nothing but EVs as well as a, an, a, an adjacent battery plant. Uh, that was not scheduled originally scheduled to go into production until later in 2025. They pulled that ahead by nine months once the IRA was was passed. Um, you know, a lot of other plants were also, uh, you know, most of the other plants. You know, the the hundred billion dollars is in the, in the right ballpark in terms of the investments. But I said most of that was actually announced before the IRA. Um, but you know, they're interesting. You know, now those those companies, you know, have been applying for the you know the IRA incentives to help offset some of their some of their investments. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're seeing 
uh, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation with, you know, slowdown for some companies versus others in terms of EV growth. Uh, you know, we've seen some companies pull back a little bit on some of those investments, maybe adjust the schedules in the other direction. Um, so where Hyundai wanted to take advantage of the fact that they needed to have vehicles assembled in North America uh, and batteries sourced in North America to get IRA tax credits on those vehicles for consumers. Um, you know, on the other side, we've had uh, Ford uh, delay um, one of their battery plants uh, in Kentucky, uh, push back the schedule on that by a year or so, um, and scale back the size uh, of another plant in Michigan uh, that they're building um, just because they don't think that their sales are going to be at that level yet where they can utilize that capacity in that time frame. Uh, similarly, GM has has slowed some things for for a variety of reasons. Sam, I, I don't own an electric vehicle, but I've had a chance to drive a few, and I pay attention to uh, uh, owner groups, you know, the various uh, brands, just to see what people, you know, real life experiences are. And and I'm kind of the Hyundai really stands out to me. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. the Ionic Five and the and the Kia EV6 are just beautiful vehicles and in the uh there have been some technical issues as you would expect but overall you know people really really like their those vehicles what's your favorite i know you you know you get a chance to drive these at events and sometimes you get loaners uh, what's your favorite ev uh i mean there, there's a lot i mean i i i am a big fan of the ev6 um that you know i, I love the way it looks love the way it drives uh you know it's got good range the Ionic Six uh, sedan is an amazing range. Uh, you know, across the board, I would say, you know, as a as a as a company, the products coming out of the Hyundai Motor Group, Hyundai, Kia, and Genesis, are just outstanding in terms of you know what they offer, the performance, range, the design, the the value. Um, I was just recently driving the new Kia EV9. Uh, you know, which is going to be a, a really important vehicle for them. You know, it's it's a it's a, an important market segment, three row, larger three row crossover SUVs, um, and so you know that's going to be the first semi affordable one in that in that segment. Uh, you know, we've got the the Rivian R1S, which is quite a bit more expensive, uh, and and some premium products out there. Um, and then you know, Hyundai's got the similar Ionic Seven coming next year. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's also a lot of, you know, a number of uh, much more affordable EVs. You know, I was, I've always been a big fan of the Chevy Bolt, which, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that it's out of production as of, as of this week. Okay. If um, I can just interrupt yeah. any truth to the rumor, uh, cause I think Mary, uh, Mary Barra uh, said, mentioned this in a, in a speech that in 2025, they're going to bring it back along with the yes. old EUV. Yeah, uh, well, they're only bringing back the EUV, so the smaller Bolt will, will not be coming back. Just the EUV, which is a little bit larger, still a small car, but a little bit larger. It will be returning in 2025, um, and shifting over to using a lot of the components from the Altium architecture. So the new motors, new power electronics. Uh, it'll be using LFP batteries, which will be much much more affordable. Uh, so they'll, they're they're really trying to get that really cost effective vehicle. You know, so hopefully in the mid Mid to twenty, mid to upper twenty thousand dollar range in the U.S. You know, obviously a little bit higher in Canada. So it is coming back in twenty twenty five. They haven't said exactly when, you know, early twenty five or late twenty five, but it's coming back. Um, but you know, the Hyundai Kona EV, the new, the second generation Kona EV, is also coming in the next few months. It's going to have a starting price of thirty four thousand dollars here in the U.S. Uh, you know, two hundred and sixty mile range. So there, there are some some good options there. But overall, I, I like what Hyundai's doing. I also like, you know, BMW's EVs, although they're obviously considerably more expensive, but they're they're also really good cars. And they've got some interesting stuff coming in a couple of years with their Noya class. Um, the uh, GM has done some other good products, but I think, you know, I have some issues with the pricing. The new Blazer EV, very expensive uh, for, for what it is. Um, Let's see. Uh, Toyota has been a, a disappointment to me with the BZ4X and the Lexus RZ. Um, you know, they're just they're they're just not great uh, for you. Don't get a lot of range. They charge slow, um, and and the, you know they're not priced great. Um, 
Volkswagen, uh, you know, the, the ID four is really good vehicle as well. So there's, there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Well, let's talk about batteries. You've mentioned that a number of times, and I do get the chance to interview battery scientists. And, and I think this has been true for a while now, but the, the pace of innovation in the battery space is just mind-boggling. We're seeing uh, the average energy density rise by 7% a year. We're seeing, we had a little bit of a, a blip over the last couple of years because of the increase in raw material costs, but now they're starting to come down and, and we're, we're seeing projections you know, into that. Uh, if we're at $100 a kilowatt hour for for the cells, not the packs, but the cells, we're looking at maybe forty dollars by twenty thirty or around there. So costs costs are going to come down. Energy density is coming up, and solid state is hanging around as it has for a while. It's, it's been uh, it's been five years away for the last fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, you know, it looks like it. It looks like we're getting closer. So uh, anyway, give me your view of of where batteries are going. Yeah, um, I think you know one of the big two, probably the two big near-term things with batteries, are uh, you know some re uh, changes in the battery chemistries, in the cathode chemistries, uh, and architectural changes in the battery packs themselves, uh, and and the way they're manufactured. Um, so on the on the chemistry side, the the big thing we're going to see a lot more of in the in the next several years is a lot more LFP, lithium iron phosphate which traditionally you know, has had lower energy density than nickel-rich batteries, um, like what we typically find, nickel-manganese-cobalt or nickel-manganese-cobalt-aluminum that we find in, in most North American EVs and, and European EVs. LFP has very, been very popular in Europe, or in China, I should say, for a long time. Uh, but And it's starting to gain ground here um, because it's both cheaper, um, a lot cheaper. The materials, are, iron and phosphorus, are readily available everywhere. We don't have to rely on countries that we may not want to do business with uh, to get those materials and, and get them processed. And um, it's it's also much more stable, much safer, um, which kind of leads into the second part, the architectural changes. Because the LFP chemistry is so much more stable than nickel chemistries, that means that we can actually pack the cells in more densely into a battery pack. Uh, and so we're going to, we're seeing this shift towards away from modular battery packs where you've got a box in a box, uh, you know, cells in a box in a box, uh, literally, uh, where cells are packed into a module and then into a larger battery pack, uh, to limit the number of cells that are in contact and, and limit the potential for thermal runaways. Um, that means that we've actually got a lot of wasted space in there in a typical modular battery pack, about 30 30 to 35% of the pack volume is actual active cell material is storing energy. Hmm. Um, when you go to a cell to pack design uh, where you get rid of the modules and you just pack in cells, just, you know, make blocks of cells, glue them, glue the cells together and stuff them into the box. Now you can get up to 75% uh, uh, fill ratio of active material. Um, and recently, uh, you know, there's a, there's a startup here. There's a number of companies doing this. BYD is a big one, uh, as well as, as CATL. Um, but uh, there's a company here in Michigan uh, called Our Next Energy. Um, and they had a development project with BMW uh, to demonstrate. They took uh, a BMW i6 and put one of their, actually a, a dual chemistry battery in there that had um, LFP, a combination of LFP cells and higher energy density cells to act as range extenders. Um, and they got over 600 miles on a charge with the BMW IX. The standard IX with the uh, with the nickel cells in there gets a little over 300 miles on a charge. So they nearly doubled the, the potential range uh, from this uh, just by you know packing in those cells in that way. Uh, and I think we're gonna see a lot more of that BYD um, at uh, the uh, IAA show in Munich in September, uh, unveiled the new SEAL sedan. And that one actually goes cell to body, um, where they don't even have a separate pack enclosure. The bottom part of the, the body shell has a cavity in there. They glue the cells together, put them up in there, put a cooling plate and a bottom plate to cover that. And that 
doing that sell to pack or sell to body um, in addition to, you know, having the, the cheaper LFP cells, higher energy density, you're also reducing a lot of components, simplifying the assembly, further reducing the cost of the, of the vehicle as a whole. Um, well, we'll close out our discussion on batteries with this one. And that is, um, there's always a lot of excitement around solid state. Oh my God, we're going to get a thousand kilometers of range and, you know, it'll be, we'll be able to charge in no time at all and, and so on. But the battery experts that I talk to say, you know what, existing, there's enough innovation coming in like LFP and, and even NMC that that energy density is going to get better and better and better and better. And we're going to see, you know, range start to get up in that five to 600 kilometers, maybe 600 to 700 kilometers in the, in the not too distant future. And you kind of get to a point where how much more do you need? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so what's your view of that? Well, I think, you know, one of the potential advantages of solid state, um, you know, is that you can increase at a cell level, increase the energy density uh, considerably and, you know, nearly, nearly double the energy density, um, you know, even, you know, compared. So even if you, if you've done, um, you know, LFP in a cell to pack design, if you can now transition that to solid state, you can get even more energy density in there, get more energy in that same volume. Now with that energy density, the reality is you don't actually need, you know, a thousand kilometers of range. You know, most, most people drive, you know, less than a hundred kilo, you know, less than 80 kilometers a day. Um, if we have much more robust, much more reliable charging infrastructure, so you can charge everywhere relatively quickly, uh, you know, at your convenience. And then, increase the continue to increase the energy density of the battery now what we can do is if we have more energy density we can start to shrink down the size of that battery uh, the physical size of the battery so that gives you more flexibility you can have a small a physically smaller pack in smaller vehicles you know because right now if you want you know 800 a thousand kilometers of range you have to have a physically large battery which in turn means a physically large vehicle so we can start to reduce the weight of the battery, reduce the size of the battery, put that same energy capacity into smaller vehicles, which in turn you know, has a, a virtuous cycle effect of, you know, if you make the vehicle smaller, it becomes lighter, it becomes more energy efficient. Uh, so you're using less electricity, then you can have an even smaller battery and still maintain the same range. So there's, there's all kinds of cascading effects. Uh, so, you know, the, yes, you know, we, Right now, you know, in the near term, we're getting up to, you know, those kinds of ranges with, with existing technologies, uh, but, and, and especially with the architectural changes to the battery. But if we continue that quest for greater energy density, we can get more and more benefit out of that, improve the affordability and access uh, for everyone. Uh, the next topic I want to discuss Sam is one that you and I have discussed many times over the last uh, three, four, five years. I can't even remember when I did my first interview with you. It's, it's been that long ago, but that is autonomous driving and robo taxis. And we've they that used to be in the news all the time, and then it kind of faded out. And then now, now when it's in the news, it's for you know. Uh, robo taxis misbehaving in San Francisco and stopping where they shouldn't stop, or you know, I think there was an accident. You know, mm -hmm. as as if as if internal combustion cars never hit anybody, uh, and but everybody goes crazy with the when the robo taxi does. So where are we at with the the robo taxi uh, industry? Are we ever going to see this thing take off, or is it just going to be a curiosity? It, I think it will take off eventually. The key word there is eventually, you know, it, it's hard to predict an exact timeline, but I, I think, you know, you're not going to see, especially in North America, we're not going to see robo taxis really widespread until late this decade. Um, and even then, you know, it's still going to be fairly limited, um, you know, in other, other parts of the world, especially in China, I think, you know, it's going to take off a lot faster. <clears throat> One of the, I was in uh, Korea in October and one of the interesting things that I saw there, you know, I was visiting with some some AV companies there, is there the focus is much more on automating public transit uh, as opposed to robo taxis. So buses, uh, you know, smaller mini buses, shuttles, 
Um, and, you know, also talking with some, somebody from uh, the public transit operator in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, and, you know, the, the challenge with public transit, you know, if, if we really want to address safety and congestion, what we need to do is get people out of cars, out of individual cars, get them into public transit. Uh, you know, that you know, can make, uh, make it more accessible to everyone, make it more cost effective, reduce congestion, reduce the need for parking. The problem is that, you know, our traditional modes of public transit, especially in North America, generally large buses, maybe, you know, some light rail, um, are, because they're large, you know, they can carry a lot of people. It's great for certain routes, but it also tends to leave a lot of gaps, you know, where there's not enough density of people taking certain trips to justify uh, a large vehicle. So you end up with vehicles being underutilized. The cost becomes prohibitive. Uh, and so ideally what you want to do, be able to do is expand access to public transit, have them in more places, feeding into the larger trunk routes, you know, using larger vehicles to so have more smaller vehicles. Now, the challenge you get there is getting drivers for all of these vehicles. Uh, talking to the, the gentleman from, from Geneva, you know, bus drivers, are, as with truck drivers in North America, bus drivers are getting older. Younger people don't want to be bus drivers. They want to provide service to more, more areas. Uh, so they need more vehicles. So automation is likely to be a key to achieving that, uh, that uh, access, the accessibility and equitable uh, access to uh, transportation for more people uh, in an affordable manner. Yeah, the, the, I I lived in the only city I've ever lived in that had had public transit like that, like an LRT, was Calgary, and and it was a really good system, except mm -hmm. that you know it took me twenty minutes to drive to the LRT parking lot, and then I had to get get on wait for the LRT and then get on the LRT and go to wherever I was going, where I could have driven to where I was going in twenty minutes. Yeah, and, it, 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 systems like that are not very flexible. Once you lay down the rails, that's where you're going. Yeah, and, I, and I've always thought that if they could have a, a much more flexible and convenient uh, low-cost uh, feeder system, like mm -hmm. maybe the, these small uh, uh, robo-taxi uh, shuttles that you're talking about, that that might solve the problem and, and people like me would be more likely to use uh, public transit. Well, let's talk about another uh, area that you and I have discussed in the past, medium and heavy-duty transportation and, the, and electrification of those vehicles. So we're talking about in the medium side, we're talking about delivery vehicles, uh, delivery vans, for, for example, heavy duty would be class eight trucks, uh, that sort of thing. But where are we at with that? Uh, making slow and steady progress. In fact, yesterday morning uh, when I was walking my dog, I saw a Rivian electric delivery van rolling through my neighborhood for the first time. Uh, and, you know, just silently cru cruising through the neighborhood, dropping off Amazon packages. Uh, so the, um, the, the progress is happening, um, particularly, you know, more the, the medium duty area, you know, things like, uh, you know, the shorter range vehicles, um, that, uh, are going through, uh, residential areas. So, uh, delivery vans, uh, school buses and my local school district, uh, next spring is getting its first batch of 10 electric school buses. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's an area that's, that's starting to pick up traction. Um, you know, and a lot of these use cases, uh, you know, are local and, and regional where they don't need more than, you know, 150 kilometers of range. And so you, you don't need enormous batteries to, to drive these things. And they're generally, you know, in, in a lot of these use cases, it's very much lower speeds, stop and go perfect use case for electrification. Now, you know, there's still challenges with, uh, you know, providing the, you know, build, building out the infrastructure at depots and things like that. Um, the U.S. Postal Service is also adopting hundreds of, you know, over 100,000 electric delivery vehicles uh, in the coming years. Um, as you go larger and larger, uh, the school buses are a great use case for electrification. Some of the others, not so much, but we're we're starting to see some some traction with uh, uh, so-called day cabs, you know, regional tractor trailers. Uh, that are operating, you know, within a hundred to two hundred miles, you know, two two to three hundred kilometer range, uh, you know, delivering, you know, from warehouses to stores, things like that. Um, long haul trucking is going to be the bigger challenge. 
um, because the battery size required for that is still, you know, cost prohibitive and and weight prohibitive. Uh, but we're starting to, you know, see some traction happening uh, with fuel cell trucks in that market. Uh, Hyundai currently has uh, about three dozen of their fuel cell tractor trailers operating in California. Um, there's others that are that are coming into the market. Uh, so it's slow progress, but it's it's progress. It's baby steps right now. But towards the end of the decade, I think we'll start to see it really starting to pick up. Um, but the, the the local and regional stuff is where we're we're really seeing the biggest traction right now. Yeah, the we, we've done a fair amount of reporting on on hydrogen in the the medium and heavy duty space, and there are definitely applications for hydrogen. For instance, you know Edmonton is uh, they've got some electric buses, and it turns out they don't work that well at thirty below. Go figure. So they're looking at hydrogen to to replace the those uh, those kilometers. And uh, there's a, a pilot project in Prince George, BC, for logging trucks, where they're they'll have a a, a, a hydrogen fuel uh, depot uh, where you just drive up and you get a combination of of diesel and and hydrogen. And and from what I've I've talked to enough uh, experts now, my take on this is is that for this segment, uh, hydrogen is going to work really well where you can make hydrogen on site. As soon as you have to start piping hydrogen around, it just gets, it's a logistical nightmare and it's expensive. I know I talked to one one uh, executive and he said, you know, maybe hundred kilometers, that that might be the, the limit to how far you can, you can uh, transport it by pipeline. So if you can, if you can have a, an electrolyzer that's right on site that makes hydrogen, maybe it stores it on site until you need it or whatever. Uh, I, I think that's got a, a lot of potential in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, for whatever other issues we may have with a company like Nikola, uh, you know, and, and their founder, Trevor Milton, was just sentenced to four years in prison for for fraud. Um, the actual concept that they laid out when they when they launched is exactly that. And I think it's actually still conceptually the, the right approach with hydrogen is to build out local production on the routes, on the major routes where these vehicles, where these trucks are going to be running, um, you know, if you, and especially if you can leverage renewables, you know, solar or wind, uh, to and and you've got a source of water to do electrolysis on site, you know, store it and compress it on site uh, in the tanks, dispense it to the trucks uh, as they come through the truck stops. That you know is the the best way for for hydrogen to work. Um, you know, and particularly given, you know, the quantity of hydrogen that you need for running long trips. Um, you know, you can do some, you know, some piping of it, uh, but, you know, the, 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 you know, there's, there's some leakage because hydrogen molecules are so small. So you don't want to pipe it, you know, cross country. Uh, but if you can, if you can do the local hydrogen production, that is the best solution there. Well, uh, Sam, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I always appreciate uh, chatting with you. We will make really sure that we it's not another year <laughs> goes by before the next interview. So happy holidays to you and all of your and your family and um, all the best in 2024. And we'll look forward to the next one. And the same to you, Mark. Have a, have a great holiday. Mm -hmm.